This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Take a deep breath. Relax. Inhale through your nose. And exhale through your mouth. Sit back and close your eyes. Gradually release the tension, starting from your toes, working up your legs to your pelvis, and from your fingertips, slowly up your arms to your shoulders. The Stacking Benjamins Show, no matter how bad it gets, is your favorite podcast. I will count backwards from three, and when I snap my fingers... You'll be overcome with delight at hearing the start of this episode. Three, two, one. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. People, I got big news for you. We got robbed. We, we got robbed down here in the basement. I'm not kidding. Last night, we suffered another snub by the Grammys, and we were robbed. But that's okay, because today is Take Your Guitar Out Day, and later in the show, I'll, uh, I'll show those Grammy people everything they missed, why we deserved an award. Anyway, today, you're not going to miss anything, because... Here to help you make work optional, we welcome half of the Fairer Sense podcast, Tanya Hester. Plus, in our headline segment, what are the most confusing retirement plans? We'll share one publication's list. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline with some help from attorney Leslie Tain 
answer a letter from the mailbag, and then, triumphantly, I'll play my guitar right after I deliver my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who should have been given the best use of a basement in a podcast speech at the Grammys the other night. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I'd like to thank all the little people, people that made this possible. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> do you consider yourself one of the little people? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very modest. I don't know if you know that or not, but um, yeah, I don't like to brag about how modest I am. I'm really super yeah, modest. Yeah, I don't really want to talk about it, but if there was somebody who was more modest, I'd like to meet them. It's just <laughs> everybody tells me. All, everybody tells me all the time how modest I am, and I tell yeah. them, "No, let's stop talking about how modest I am." Let's just. It's not cool enough. Did you watch the Grammys last night? What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That was like the best question ever. Which is the next best answer of what are the Grammys? Leading the witness, your honor. Leading the witness. Asked and answered. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the We Didn't Watch the Grammys podcast. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table to kick off another week. It's my good friend, the other guy, or as we call him, OG. And it's my good friend, Joe, as I call him, Joe. <laughs> people, people see my last name, you know, and, and, and. Oh, I know. I love, I love watching on Twitter and Facebook messages and stuff. And then they're like, how do you, how do you pronounce that? And I go, Joe. <laughs> or Joel. Joel. Joel is, Joel's the best one. I get, I yeah, that's a whole different story, maybe for later. Yes. But you know what you don't want to wait on for later? If you own a small business, you don't want to wait on having the right amount of money for your business. Thanks to On Deck for supporting Stacky Benjamins. If you're a small business owner in need of capital today, On Deck can help with over $10 billion with a B in loans and an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. On Deck's a lender you can trust. Find out more at ondeck.com slash SB. We'll talk more about them and why we like on deck a little later in the show. Also, we're brought to you by Magnify Money. You know, over 92% of those products you use every day available at Magnify Money. And you know what you won't find there? You won't find all the rotten stuff you're using at your brick and mortar bank. You're going to find higher interest rate savings accounts, checking accounts with lower fees. If you pay off your credit cards every month, you'll find better options for reward games. And if you're somebody that needs to pay less interest to the man, you don't want to go near that. Instead, you can compare and contrast consolidation loans so you can cut up the card and get on your debt-free journey. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money for that. Tanya Hester's here today. Tanya retired early, way, 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 way early, OG. And today she's going to talk about her personal journey doing that and uh, tell us some stories about other people who have made that journey. So if you're somebody that wants some inspiration around leaving the nine to five a little earlier than you thought, she's going to help you out. I'm a big fan of retiring early. So, so let's get on with let's it. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> First, we got some headlines. OG. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. First headline comes to us from investment news. This is something that people in the industry take for granted. All of these terms that we throw out, OG, I remember the early days 
and just kind of nod my head. Remember those days? People would say some term, you had no idea what the hell they were talking about. Oh, yeah. And then you go look it up later. Those days were like yesterday for me. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. This is written by Greg Iacurci and is an investment news 401k jargon that most confuses clients. And this is obviously a piece for financial advisors, but I thought it's important to dig into this. Greg writes, the retirement industry is replete with lingo meant to express certain concepts. Most is confusing enough to make an investor's head spin. To follow, here are some of the most common 401k buzzwords advisors come across along with alternate, easier-to-understand descriptions for clients. And we're going to start it off going right down Main Street. I always thought, (laughs) it's funny, when I first clicked on this, I went, yup. Confusing term number one, Roth. More than two-thirds of 401k plans allow employees to make Roth contributions, but that doesn't mean employees know what a Roth contribution is. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything. In Canada... They call it a TFSA, which makes a hell of a lot more sense. Tax-free savings account. Bam. We have the Roth. The Roth. Craig Stanley, lead partner at Summit Group of Virginia's Retirement Plan Consulting Group, says, with all due respect to Senator William Roth for creating what I believe is one of the best options within a retirement plan, I would prefer it to be named something that better describes its purpose to the average saver. Couldn't agree more. Yep. Mr. Stanley helps explain the concept with a farming analogy. Savers can choose to pay tax when they plant the seed, immediate taxation, or wait to pay the tax until they harvest their crop, deferred taxation, via traditional plans. That's a good analogy. Okay. I like that. I like like that that. one. Uh, Confusing term number two, deferral. Deferral. Okay. This one's not as confusing. Well, you can furl or you can deferl. No. (laughs) That's what I spent my entire sophomore year of high school trying to do. So how'd that work out for you? I ended up furling a lot more than deferling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for, the term deferral refers to the amount of money employees choose to defer from their paycheck into a 401k plan. Jason Chepanick, managing partner at Chepanick Financial, recommends using the term contribution instead. Yeah, way, okay. way, way better. Like instead of how much do you want to defer, huh? What? How much do you want to contribute to the plan? Way, way better. Uh, Number three on this list, defined contribution. Oh, my. When people talk about. Oh, boy. Well, in the defined contribution. I still get these confused. Or defined benefit. uh, A 401k plan is a type of defined contribution plan. An employee's monetary contribution to the retirement plan is literally defined via a certain percentage of pay or a fixed annual amount. Rather than use the term defined contribution plan, advisors can substitute workplace savings plan, said Stephen Weiland, partner at Shepherd Financial. I like this. So when I think about somebody says defined contribution versus defined benefit, I think, first of all, you got to know those two terms go together, defined contribution or defined benefit. So if the contribution's defined, what you get on the other end is not. That'll be something that you're saving into that's variable. So that would be a 401k, uh, IRA, whatever. If it's defined benefit, you know exactly what you're getting on the other end, but in a lot of cases, not sure exactly what you're putting in. Maybe you're putting in time. That'd be like a pension plan. But some pension plans are defined contribution pensions. So I just I just muddied the water even more. Yeah, thanks for that. Appreciate it. How about this? This one drove me nuts when I first became a financial planner. Basis points. Well, that was thir- that's 37 basis points. I'm like, what, what the hell are you talking 37 basis mm-hmm. points. 
Basis points is an already confusing term made worse by shortening into BPS or BIPs. Yeah. Ah, uh, there you go. It's only, it's only 16 bits. I understand the problem with your calculations. And it's a basis point or a BIP is a hundredth of a percent. So if something is 16 basis points, it's 0.16%. I found many people don't really understand percentages, so basis points becomes even more challenging, says Alan Lander, principal and founder of Renaissance Benefit Advisors Group. Rather than say 35 basis points or 35 bips, she said, we tried to train ourselves to take a breath and say 35 one hundredths of a percent or $3.50 for every $1,000 in your account. That's a better way to go, I think. I use fractions. So I'll say like it's a third of a percent. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people are familiar with the the you know quarter, third, eighth, just from, you know, kind of regular cooking stuff, you know, like how many milks do you put in a mac and cheese one quarter a cup is how much milk and like how much butter all of it <laughs> how much garlic more yes that's the <laughs> yes. the next one on the list here is very i think it's important i don't think bips i mean knowing your fees is is important but like you said there's other ways to state it. i think this is one that's uh that is super important to understand, which is asset classes. I can see how this gets confusing for people, OG. Yeah, what do you exactly mean by that? Participants often compare fund performances without regard to asset classes, which isn't their fault, but a result of how information is often presented to them by the industry. Mr. Stanley, who I quoted earlier from Summit Group, says... We help explain this by telling them that each fund is playing in a different sandbox with different types of sand, texture, and water. So it's unreasonable to compare the sandcastle one manager built versus another in a given time period. Only comparing managers in the same sandbox with the same sand would be reasonable. I like that. That's good stuff. It always drives me crazy, and we've talked about this before, people saying, well, you didn't beat the S&P 500. That fund's not trying to beat the S&P 500. That fund's goal has nothing to do with the the S&P 500. They're two different asset classes. They're two different sandboxes. Next up, dollar cost averaging. Confusing. Okay. But I can that, see that one. That one, I think, though, you can get over the hump. You know? Somebody starts explaining what that's all about. Of course, that's an investment. Or, or, or what if you just say DCA? DCA, $100 a month. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, then it gets, yeah, that gets ugly. I've done that before. Oh, yeah. Well, we do. That's the problem. is, And that's why it's written for financial planners is because how I talk to you about something or how, I, how I'm talking to another colleague about you know a client situation or something, we're going to use a lot of jargon and lingo that we use like SPO or BA or something like that. Those are just terms that we use internally. Yeah. And if you say that to a client, it just... Ugh. For people wondering what dollar cost averaging is, by the way, that's an investment. Too bad. Yeah, we're on to the next one. Is an investment technique spreading share purchases at regular intervals using a fixed dollar amount. So if you put $100 in a month uh, and the price goes up and down, you're averaging the cost by buying at different costs uh, and leaving the time fixed. So next up, there's only just a couple more here. Risk. Oh boy, there's so many different types of risk. People just understand market risk. As an example, you take your money out of the market and you sit it on the sidelines. You you actually think you got rid of your risk, OG. You just went from one risk to a whole different risk. Right. I try as much as possible to use the word 
volatility. And I know that that's probably one of these other ones coming up. But then I'll even catch myself there and say the general ups and downs of your investment. Because risk is your chance of loss. And you know, over a long period of time, your chance of loss is pretty remote. So it's actually funny you say so that because uh, Miss Lander, who I quoted earlier at Renaissance Benefit Advisor Group, she says, since risk is typically used to express volatility, Miss Lander tries to use the latter term. She tries to just say volatility instead of saying yeah. risk to make sure that we're talking about up and down movement in the market. Right. Yep. Next on the list, oh boy, is Glide Path. <laughs> Thank God. I freaking hate this. This is this is such a terrible saying. I like mine better. Landing the plane. Landing the plane. There it is. As you're landing the plane. A glide path is used in conjunction with target date funds. <clears throat> Did I just throw up in my mouth? Yeah. A little bit, sorry about yeah. that. And a little bit on the microphone. I can to, de- to, to describe how the mix of stocks and bonds automatically changes over time. Mr. Wylam at Shepherd Financial, who we quoted earlier, describes it like dynamic or adaptive cruise control on a car. With regular cruise control, the speed stays the same until a driver changes it, but newer cars have cruise control that automatically slows down the car the closer it gets to another vehicle, which, when it relates to retirement, is, he says, is age 65. It was great till it said, which is age 65. Yeah. <laughs> great. Uh, as soon as you get to 65, you need all of your money. So therefore, it should be all completely safe and secure from that point forward. Right now, vesting. <laughs> vesting yeah, is the next word. Yep. It's like it's like what I have. I, I'm vesting today. Yes. I'm 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 sweatering. You're vesting. Yeah. Uh we could be sweater vesting. Uh, vesting Ooh. actually refers to employees' entitlement to money in their 401k accounts. If the employer matching contribution fully vests after three years, that means they only get 100% of your money after three years. So when, when people ask for the vesting schedule, it's how much of you, of that money is actually yours. Because if they say... Well, this also helps with the stock option purchases or stock option grants as well. Yeah. Yeah. If they say that it's 100% vested after five years, you know, you got to stick around for five years, but maybe it's 50% vested in two years. That's Well, then there's cliff vesting or there's regular vesting. You know, cliff vesting is when a guy named Cliff wears a vest. Ah, yeah. Which is way better than Larry vesting. <laughs> now you're just confusing everybody. <laughs> I'm looking at you like, is that where the vesting Dude, is all or not? We're supposed to like actually clarify this, not make it more. <laughs> well, so cliff vesting obviously means that you don't get anything until the end of that period. So sometimes they might say it's a three-year cliff vest, which means that you get 0% of that other money until three years has gone by and then you get all of it. A regular vesting schedule might be a third each year for three years. And so if you leave after two years, you'll have two thirds of the benefit. So you have to know the difference. Next is portfolio. Yeah. This yeah. Is not too confusing. I think everybody can get that one. That's the last one. That's probably a good place to leave it. We'll link to this. As it's the last one? Good. Smart. Yes. We'll, we'll link to this in our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com if you want to go review those more. Uh, you know, we got a big holiday coming up on Thursday, OG. I know it's all you've been thinking about. Stay tuned for my guaranteed mother and mother-in-law gift idea that uh, is oh, just fantastic. It's the gift that keeps giving. You're doing the same you one? You will I'll never stop. Have to. Uh, this is from USA Today. 
from bacon and beef jerky to breadsticks and pickles, Valentine's Day bouquets go mm-hmm. wacky. This is written by Kelly Tycho. Forget traditional flowers, Kelly writes. Although roses continue to be one of the top-selling Valentine's Day gifts, other bouquets are gaining in popularity. Think meaty ones made with bacon and beef jerky, sour ones with pickles. (laughs) My stomach just growled. Beef jerky. It literally just... jerky and pickles. I I don't know if you could hear that on the microphone, but it growled really loud. Uh, That's funny. Or sweet ones with candy, cupcakes, and donuts. More edible and non-traditional bouquets like these have been sprouting up in recent years. Quote, it's allowing consumers to get their Valentine, a unique gift that still holds on to the tradition of Valentine's Day, said Sarah Hollenbeck, shopping and savings expert at Offers.com, a deals website. U.S. consumers, this is a piece I wanted to get to, are expected to spend on average about $162 on Valentine's Day gifts and meals this year. That's up $18 from uh, last year. You know, you think about that number, OG. I mean, 18 bucks doesn't seem like a lot of money to be up, but 144 before, that's a, uh, what, 12, 13% increase in spending on a Hallmark holiday? St. Valentine's Day, a Hallmark holiday? How dare you? I see people sometimes, and I remember the pressure to spend money on Valentine's Day. Don't you think the best Valentine's Day gift you could get your Valentine if you're in debt or struggling financially? Go to the casino away from your Valentine so that you can have some alone time. I agree 100%, which is why Mrs. OG is getting that gift this year. She's getting the gift of of you not being around. Honey, I've got this great gift. You can relax here without me. Yeah, it's fantastic. And better news i'm gonna go try to win the kids college tuition yeah you don't have to worry about me uh being in the way and uh, i'm gonna put it all on black yes so one of two things happen but either way we're not gonna have to worry about the kids college (laughs) either way (laughs) that's the way to do it you get halfway funded with all of your goals and you just go to the casino believe it or not to start over believe it or not that's not what i was thinking shocker don't want to spoil this but i was thinking that if you're struggling with money the best Valentine you could get would be to put $162 toward your debt repayment instead of toward yeah. uh, toward some beef jerky edibles. I can't even imagine that this 162 includes all the extra stuff that surrounds it, too. That might just be the gifting, but what about dinner and a show and you know it, all those other layers of things? It says gifts and meals. I see. Okay. Makes me feel bad now. I am this year, by the way. Usually, I don't really spend money on Valentine's Day. I'm going big this uh-huh. year. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've moved to the city. <laughs> and there's- you just couldn't pull it off in Texarkana. <laughs> you had to go to the big city to have a great Valentine's Day. You can only go to Red Lobster so many times before the, the thrill wears off. The IHOP. <laughs> the IHOP. <laughs> Where everybody knows your name. In just a second, we'll have the takeaways from those two pieces. But, OG, while we're on the topic of debt, while you're paying off your debt, it's important to have a debt strategy, and Magnify Money can help you get one. We've been partners with Magnify Money since nearly, OG, the beginning of this podcast. And it's always cool to see people that go there for the first time and go, oh, this this site's got more here than I thought it had. A, there's an award-winning blog that's led by our good friend Mandy Woodruff from the Brown Ambition podcast, and also Mandy used to lead Yahoo Finance, uh, was an editor there. Now she 
runs this great blog operation. But the heart of the site is in the comparison tools, everything from debt products. So if you're somebody who's paying a lot of interest to the man, you can refinance your student loans, help your kids refinance their student loans. If you're in a plus loan, uh, refinance programs, lower fee checking accounts, higher interest savings accounts, it's all there. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash magnify money. There's a Valentine's Day gift. Honey, we're going to go to magnify money today. $400. You're welcome. Boom. Average person saves 400 bucks. Yeah, that's that's a good takeaway. Save that's 400 bucks gift. and then your 162 that you're spending on Valentine's Day doesn't feel so awful if you insist on spending that money. So I think our takeaways today, OG, are these. $162 if you're in debt, uh, better spent getting out of debt. Maybe not OG's casino advice. And then uh, second... If you don't know what a term means when it comes to financial stuff, either ask your professional to slow down and explain it. Don't be afraid to do that. That's why you have them. Or stop, take a second and look it up because managing your money well means understanding these terms that everybody just seems to be throwing around. Well, she and her husband did something that a lot of people think is unthinkable. She had a fantastic job, and so did he. And yet, at a very early age, decided it was time to make work optional for her. Not only has she lived that lifestyle, she's written a book about it. Tanya Hester is not only half of the Our Next Life blog, but she's also half of the Fair Sense podcast. Both are award-winning and she's on her way to the basement now. So let's say hello to our new friend, Tanya Hester. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it is somebody I've known for a long time, but it's about time we finally got her down here. Tanya Hester's here. How are you? Hey, Joe, I'm great. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm great now that you're here. I got to tell you, I have to ask you this. Is this awesome, like seeing your name in print? Like you go to a bookstore and I mean, don't get me wrong. You've got the podcast, you've got the blog, but then you see the new book. Tell me about that feeling the first time you saw it on a shelf. Gosh, it's kind of an out-of-body experience. <laughs> it's amazing. And seeing and feeling a physical thing, especially the first time that I saw it, when it was like, this was my Word document <laughs> that I spent the last year on. And now it looks like a book. Um, no, it's amazing. It's it's really, really cool and definitely worth all the all the hard work. And even better is starting to hear from folks about how much it's helping them. And that is just really an indescribable feeling. Although I'm sure you understand because you get notes like that for the podcast. All no, the time. no, you know, no, neither of our listeners ever learn a thing from the show. So just <laughs> if, and if they learn something, they need to keep it to themselves because they're going to ruin our reputation, Tanya. But, but I, I, I agree. I went through this and it's so amazing. Well, let's not talk about how great the book is. Let's just dive into some of the stuff because you start off with your story and I'd like to talk a little bit about your story. You and your husband, Mark, retired at a really young age. How old were you when you retired? I was 38 and he was 41. How did that come about? Because, I mean, my understanding is you had a career that you really liked and so did he. Yeah, you know, we followed the narrative that we were taught was was the success narrative. We worked really hard. We went to good colleges. We uh, really committed ourselves to our careers, which we don't have kids, so we had 
the time to be able to do that. We could say yes to things like a lot of travel and really intensive work schedules. But even though we believed in the work that we were doing and we got a lot of satisfaction out of it, it was consulting. It was for clients who expected us to be reachable at all hours and the type of work where you get promoted, but then you never work less. You only ever work more uh, with each promotion. And we just started to realize, you know, this is taking too big a toll on our health and our happiness. And it's taking away our opportunities to do the other things outside of work that we dream of doing. So we we realized we were in a fortunate position to be able to get to early retirement pretty quickly, which is certainly not the case for everyone. But we just really felt like we could make work one chapter of our lives and then move on to kind of the next chapter, which is what we're doing now. Which is where the name Our Next Life, I guess, probably came from for the blog, I would imagine. Yep. Now, you talk about so many things that the average person doesn't get to hear about, about your life and about your decision-making You talk a little bit about your dad in the book and about how he had some physical issues that made him retire early. Did that factor into your decision? Oh, hugely, because his health issues are all genetic and I have the same genetic condition. So far, it's not nearly as bad in my case, but I have always known that I didn't necessarily have an unlimited clock, which is true for everyone, but I don't think everyone thinks about it in quite such a front of mind way. But for me, I knew, you know, I love to do outdoorsy stuff. I love to climb mountains and ski and hike and bike and all those things. I knew I couldn't necessarily do those things in my 60s or put them off until then, until kind of traditional retirement age. And so absolutely, that played a huge role of like, I don't want to spend all my good years, all my able-bodied years at a desk and working. I want to be able to get outside while I'm still mostly able to do that. And I think it's it's a good thing we retired when we did because I am seeing some impact. So it's it's really gratifying to know we made the right choice. I would never call a physical, genetic or otherwise condition a blessing. But in some ways, the fact that you could see that writing on the wall. I mean, when I was a financial planner, Tanya, I saw people that were just wasting these years of their life. And because of that, you were able to say, hey, you know what? My, my life is finite and I've got to do something that's my own agenda instead of somebody else's. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I I agree. Obviously, I would never call my dad's condition a blessing. But the fact that we knew about it and that I could look forward and say, this could be my future in the not too distant future was a different level of motivation. And, you know, the truth is that two thirds of Americans are being forced to retire before they feel financially ready. Americans want to work until 66, 67, but they're really retiring at 62, 63. And the biggest reason for that is poor health. So this isn't some crazy rare phenomenon. This is something that affects a lot of people. And I just feel fortunate that it it was obvious to me at a younger age that this could be my future so that I could act on it instead of not realizing until my late 50s or something of like, oh, I might have some health challenges that might limit me. You say early in the book that you want to dispel the myth that you don't need to be this magical unicorn, some kind of, you know, there's there's people that just look, I guess, at the fire movement in general, and they see these uh, engineers or physicians making big money. So I'm going to ask you the questions that everybody wants to know at the beginning of this. Were you the unicorns making big money? No, we were not unicorns. We, Mark and I both made in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range right out of college. We got to a place eventually in our careers where we were both making six figures, but that is certainly not where we started. 
And the reason I really wanted to write this book is, is for that reason. I think that there is such a belief that you have to be naturally frugal, that you have to not like spending money on really anything, that you have to make a ton of money right out of college, that you can't have kids, all of these different things. And I wanted to show examples of how you can defy all of those things. So in our case, we don't have kids, but we're also not naturally frugal at all. So for us, it was trying to find ways to automate our savings and kind of work against our bad habits in ways that helped us succeed. And then I share a lot of stories in the book of people with kids. In fact, most of the stories in the book are families with children. I also have some single folks. So trying to show every kind of life circumstance, as well as folks who don't earn high incomes, have a couple case studies that show folks who earn under six figures combined or right around six figures combined so that we're not just talking about people who are making, you know, half a million dollars a year. That's what, I, And I love that because I learned so much better from case studies. I found that when I was a financial planner, we had a regional manager who actually came in with American Express when I was there, who uh, started having a study successful companies and said, listen, these people that you work with, they're just like companies. And the more they think about their finances, if they're a company, the better off they're going to do. Did the two of you start off on the right foot, though? Were you were you saving money uh, from the very beginning, even when you were making in the 20 and 30 thousands or when you decided, you know what, we want to have this 10-year plan to get there that didn't take you 10 years. I guess I'm spoiled that. We'll get there later. How far along the journey were you and how did you get to that point? We definitely did not start out with good habits. So when I was a, a lower earner right out of school, I was fortunate not to have a lot of student debt, but I very quickly ran up a bunch of credit card debt. Then I bought a brand new car at 100% financing with $0 down. So there was a time in my early 20s when I had more, more debt than annual income and had to dig my way out of that, which at the time felt impossible. And that was really the start for me of my financial journey of trying to climb out of debt. And when Mark and I got together, we both made that a top priority. And then the great thing was once I got out of debt when I was about 27, then we just kept all those same habits in place and started saving. At the time we were living in Los Angeles, we didn't think we'd ever be able to buy a place there. It's so expensive. And we benefited strangely from the financial crisis and that property prices came down and we were able to buy our first place in 2009. And then after we had that, we just kind of kept some of those saving habits in place. But amped them up so that by the time we decided to save for early retirement, it was just sort of like the next goal. But it had been one more step in a big progression of building up to that from having very bad habits in my early career to, you know, gradually getting to a better place. I And I don't want to skip over that because what I often have seen is people get done paying off credit card debt and they high five themselves and then they go do the same crap they used to do. You know, they get mm -hmm. back into it. So that transfer over from the hurdles to all of a sudden saving toward a goal was awesome. Did you only save into IRAs, 401ks, that type of thing? No, I mean, that's actually something that is a big regret of ours is we were not smart about retirement saving when our incomes were lower. And so by the time we really got serious about early retirement, we were earning too much to save in IRAs and Roths. So we are probably the only early retirees out there who have $0 in a Roth, uh, which is a little weird. We did, of course, take full advantage of our 401ks at work. Sure. So we did have that sort of tax advantaged option, but otherwise, no. When So you guys decide to have this audacious goal, this 10-year plan. 
I want to be a fly on the wall, Tanya. Tell me where you guys, I'm imagining you, I don't know, at a restaurant or something and saying, hey, you know what? Let's get crazy and let's do this in 10 years. Do you remember where you were when you decided that the 10-year plan was going to be a thing? The genesis of it was when we bought our place in Tahoe, which is what we call our forever home. We kind of jokingly at the time called it our retirement home. And we said, like, let's work on being fully retired in 10 years. The hilarious thing, though, is we had no actual vision. The 10-year plan was not a real plan. It was really just sort of like a an idea, like a big fishtail. And <laughs> by the time we realized that we could do it faster, we were probably about two years in, which is about when I started the blog. And at that point, we set a goal of saying, okay, let's let's get it down to six years total. But we just sort of started saving more aggressively and amping that up and really trying to contain our lifestyle, which honestly, I think is the single biggest thing that everyone can do. If you can do work that allows you to increase your income over time, but you can keep your standard of living steady, like your example of people paying off credit cards and then going crazy spending again, yeah. like just get to a point where you're comfortable with your spending and stay there and all the new money you earn, bank it. That alone will get you so far toward any financial goal. Uh, but we were able to do that and keep increasing our income so that our, our savings accelerated. And so, yeah, in the end, our 10-year plan was six years and that finished about a little over a year ago. That is so awesome. And you talk about when you're controlling expenses to control the big expenses, right? You've got, I believe it's chapter six in the book. You kind of go over the big expenses and how to control those. You moved to Lake Tahoe, which mm -hmm. I don't live there, but I've heard that real estate can be fairly expensive around Lake Tahoe. How did you get that done and still make it so that you could retire in six years? Yeah, you're so right that controlling the biggest expenses really will go the farthest. You know, you don't have to clip coupons and try to save 30 cents at a time if you can just keep a car for a long time instead of buying a new car or stay in your starter home and not upsize. Those things go a long way. So we for sure got very lucky in that we bought in Tahoe in 2011. So pretty much the bottom of the market after the uh, financial crisis. That made a big difference. But even then, we could have bought a lot more house than we did. And we decided that we were going to set our budget instead of borrowing what the banks would have happily lent us. And so that was much, much smaller. Uh, our house is still plenty, still great. Uh, but, but we didn't do the American dream thing and buy the most house we could afford. So yeah, I think if you can keep those things contained, transportation and housing, that goes a long way. And yeah, here in Tahoe, it's super expensive. Our utilities are a fortune. Groceries are a fortune. We call it the mountain tax. Our gas right now is over $4 a gallon, just oh to my, give you an example. Double what I pay. But the good thing is we have a different culture here where people are here to live an outdoor lifestyle. And so folks are game to come over and bring dessert and just hang out at home and play games or to go for a hike instead of when we lived in L.A., getting together with friends meant going out for a $100 dinner. Yeah. And so I think that the culture and the people you surround yourself with are just as important as the cost of living wherever you are. I was just thinking that you moved from a very expensive area to Tahoe. So in some ways, mm -hmm. it was a cost reduction. Yeah. In terms of housing, it got a little cheaper. But in terms of day-to-day -day expenses, it actually got more ex more expensive. Yeah. So you control that by going for a hike, which is awesome. Yeah. 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 Which, which I'd rather <laughs> do anyway, by the way. Let's do that. When you got to the six-year point, you went through some math, and you actually go through some of the math throughout the book. Tell me about the math that you two did to decide, you know what, now's the time that we can make this work. The funny thing is we actually did very separate math, and it's significantly more complicated than what is in 
the book. I really tried hard to boil things down to folks. I, I don't believe in one size fits all numbers or planning. I think that it's really important to go through your own life, decide what your priorities are, what you want your life to look like, and also just what your risk tolerance is. And if you're a little bit more fearful of the financial markets, for example, building in a bigger cushion so that you can sleep at night, that's super important. But so for Mark and I, we're both pretty big nerds in case that wasn't obvious. And we each built our separate spreadsheets and our own models to figure out what we needed. Did and you have a spreadsheet war? Not to cut you out. Did you have a spreadsheet war? We we didn't exactly, but we figured like once they actually agreed with each other, we were probably <laughs> doing something right. So and awesome. That was sort of our thing. And so all along the journey, we actually both maintained our separate spreadsheets. And then every few months we'd kind of check in and go, okay, are they still in agreement? And they were. So that made us feel like they were pretty sound. And we were using other tools too. We talked to a financial planner at one point. So we did our due diligence and didn't just assume we were smarter than everyone else. But I also don't think you have to do quite that complicated of math. Let's let's talk about some of the things afterwards, though, that people worry about. One thing you know everybody worries about is, is healthcare. How do you reconcile that? Oh, yeah. Healthcare is by far, I think, the biggest thing that people should be worried about. Things like market volatility right now, it's a, a volatile time. That's just always going to be kind of in the background. And so that's part of being an investor. But healthcare is tough because right now the cost of healthcare is increasing at about three times the rate of inflation. And as anyone who's looked at investments know, you can't get an investment to match that consistently. So what we really recommend, what I recommend is that folks build in a pretty sizable cushion so that you can absorb future healthcare costs and just know what the law is. Right now, we still sort of have the Affordable Care Act. If it sticks around, it allows your healthcare premiums to double at age 50. It's really important to know that because a lot of folks in their 40s think like, okay, I can afford this premium now, not realizing that a few years down the road, your premium may jump a ton. Surprise, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then a thing that I recommend very highly is that folks consider what I call a two-phase retirement. So what we did is we planned for our early retirement, our years between now and age 60, as one thing. And we saved a separate pool of funds for that. And then we have a larger pool waiting for us at age 60 in our tax-advantaged accounts that will increase our budget so that if, for example, healthcare costs a fortune by then or Medicare has been trimmed back, which most people underestimate how much Medicare covers currently, uh, right now it only covers between 60 and 70 percent of expenses. So if that gets more expensive, we want to know that we have a good cushion so that we don't get to age 60 and then suddenly feel like we have to live, you know, a, a poverty lifestyle because healthcare costs so much. So that's another way that that folks can think about it. You can also not count on your social security, for example, and use that as a healthcare buffer. But all of those things are are just really crucial to include in your planning. There's so much that we didn't get to and so many of the case studies that are in the book. The book is called Work Optional, Retire Early, the Non-Penny-Pinching Way. Where can everybody get it, Tanya? All the book selling places, it's everywhere. It's great. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, and I think you'll appreciate this. We support independent booksellers. So instead mm -hmm. of the usual Amazon that people do, if you want to go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Powell's, you can buy the book from Powell's. I would be remiss though. So that's the book. We have to talk about, we've got two other things we had to talk about. I love the podcast, The Fairer Sense. Let's Thank talk you. about what you and Kara are doing over there for people that don't know about the show. Tell everybody about the show. Yeah, the Fairer Sense is the podcast that Kara Perez and I do. We call it like a women in economics podcast. So it's not giving personal finance tips, but it's sort of looking at the world that we live in and trying to break down some of the challenges that women in particular face. But we get into stuff that affects men and people of color, folks who have different disabilities. 
we try to kind of cover that whole experience in a way that helps us all say, okay, there are some big barriers in the world and some big problems, but how do we either fight against them or operate within that system anyway? Sometimes very difficult conversations, but handled very, um, uh, I don't know if in a fun way is the way to say it, in a relaxed manner where it's, I don't know where, where it's a free flowing conversation. I don't know how to put that because, because it's not necessarily fun, but I'm, but I'm loving listening to it. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I I really appreciate that. We call it laugh so we don't cry. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah that's exactly it. Yes. I'm going to steal that next time I tell people about the show. And then next, of course, there's the blog. Tell everybody what's coming up on the blog. Yeah. The blog is our next life. It started as the chronicle of Mark's and my journey to early retirement. Now I share a lot about the things that we're discovering in early retirement because I really do believe it's early retirement is not the end goal. It's just the new starting line in a way where you have a chance to reevaluate everything in life and to look at what's truly important to you. And so we're learning a ton as we go through it. And and I love sharing that. Also, keeping up on things like healthcare, that's something that's really important to me. So I'd probably go into more depth on healthcare than just about any other early retirement blog out there. Uh, and that'll for sure be true as policy changes happen. And uh, yeah, some of the the financial things we're learning, keep folks updated on book stuff. It's just, it's a fun community over there. It is a fun community. And we'll link to all those on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. I'm so happy we finally got you down in the basement, Tanya. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and you are in for a treat. After seven years of the Grammy Awards ignoring this awesome podcast, I thought I'd show them and you little of my handiwork. But first, how about some trivia? Today is Thomas Edison's birthday. So how about this nugget? Edison worked on an offbeat schedule, and it was partly his remarkable tenacity that enabled him to make groundbreaking discoveries. What basic necessity of life did Edison often shun in favor of his work? Well, thanks to On Deck for supporting Stacky Benjamins. If you're somebody that owns a small business, the reason why we decided to partner with On Deck is because they're a great place to go for help. If you need capital to manage cash flow, purchase inventory, or upgrade your office space, you're going to find out very quickly that getting access to capital is incredibly challenging. And most traditional banks lack the technology and resources to truly understand a small business. It's funny, OG. I was talking to some of our friends over at uh, On Deck and just talking about how banks want to, A, they want to tie your assets, your personal assets to your business which can be scary. Not only does your business go down, but you could lose your entire house. The second thing is, is that they also want to tie in your personal credit with your business's credit. Those are often two totally different things. You, you, you've had this issue just running your business, getting bankers to understand like how you make money and, and, and how your cash flow works is incredibly frustrating. It's very difficult and annoying because everything is just so formulaic now. And I get it. You know, all the bankers and, and whatever, they, you know, they got kind of <laughs> taken to the woodshed, you know, 10, 11 years ago for, for floating money around too easily. But it is extremely frustrating if you own a business and you want to, you know, be responsible by 
growing your business through debt. And that's a way, there's a way to do that. But then you go to the bank and they say, well, we can give you a personal loan for 50 grand. It's like, well, I don't want a personal loan. I want this, I want this yeah. tied to the business. And yeah. I don't know any serious entrepreneurs who will take their business and let it default before they default, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you've owned a business, Joe, before. We own a business together. You know, you've owned other businesses. There's been plenty of times where you've just decided not to take a paycheck, right? Where you just go, not enough money for me to take a paycheck. My employees get paid. The lights stay on. The presses keep running. Today, I don't get a paycheck. And that's just how it is. It's so frustrating when people want to tie your personal stuff to your business stuff because you're like, the business is a whole different entity than me. So I appreciate the fact that they have a program here that they can separate all that out. I have a friend who's the CFO of a dental company. And when he was hired, the owner of the company said explicitly, your number one job as CFO is to get all my personal ties to this debt removed. And, mm-hmm. and and he was going from bank to bank and it was just, it was this absolutely horrible experience he talked about. Well, with On Deck, by the way, I like going to ondeck.com slash SB and I, you can read success stories of how business owners have worked with On Deck. A Marine who grew his business 100% year over year, a family business who took on bigger and more accounts by hiring more employees, an innovator who leapt three years ahead of the competition by hiring some top talent, all kinds of ways the people have grown their business more successfully. So whether it's a term loan or a line of credit, their loan specialist can help you secure the funding you need. You'll get a decision in minutes and funding in as fast as 24 hours. They don't require any business collateral. They're 100% committed to small business owners with fast, easy, and tailored financing. Plus, as I mentioned earlier in the show, they have an A-plus rating for the Better Business Bureau. So for Stacky Benjamin's listeners, get this. On Deck's offering a free consultation with one of their U.S.-based loan specialists so you can talk through the strategies that On Deck has helped other entrepreneurs use that may be successful for you as well. For more information, head to ondeck.com slash SB. That's ondeck.com slash SB for the free consultation. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and... In just a moment, you're going to hear my rendition of MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, but on the guitar. It's so innovative. Anyway, I know you're excited, so let's wade through this trivia. We'll get it over with, and then you can hear my sweet skills. Anyway, in honor of Thomas Edison's birthday, what basic necessity of life did he often shun in favor of work? Edison's erratic schedule would often lead him to being in his laboratory at all hours of the day and night, and because he was an ambitious person, like me, Edison was not all that fond of the idea of going to the sleep. Oh, that's not that exciting. Anyway, well, he felt that sleep was a waste of time, and he would sleep as little as he could get away with, you know, sometimes like just three or four hours a day. Hmm, That's all I usually get in an afternoon. Well, of course, Edison's development of the light bulb and artificial light is ironically thought to have greatly reduced the amount of sleep that modern people get. Speaking of modern people, let's show those people at the Grammys what they missed by not nominating us for an award last night. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, all right, so I got my guitar. I was just warming up. That was just a warm-up. Uh, let's see here. Key of, uh, what is this? Key of E. Uh, and then, okay. Okay. Yeah, here we go. A one and a two and a what? 
Now, oh, but I'm about to do my big, uh, you can't touch this guitar riff. But no, they're dying to hear it. All right, okay, all right, all right, fine, 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 fine. Well, Joe's mom says that if I know what's good for me, I'll riff on the dishes. And if mama ain't happy, you know what I mean? Big thanks to Tanya Hester for hanging out with us today. You know, OG, Tanya, Tanya's story is is so cool. I love this idea of instead of helping somebody else get what they want, some big business that has a bunch of goals, waking up one day and going, you know what? I've got my own goals. And even though I love what I do, let's pursue my goals instead of just somebody else's goals. Take care of you. It's so important to actually have that thought process. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Oh, am I rehired now? Because I was fired for the last couple of weeks. You are temporarily rehired. I'm temporarily I just thought I'd give you another shot. I'd give you one more shot. As it's almost Valentine's Day, obviously you have to go with chocolates and... um, I don't know. Valentine's Day cards. Sure. That, that, that Nice job. Your loved ones and your, and your time, which, Hey, loved ones time. Kind of sort of the same deal, but don't you like that idea with Valentine's Day cards where you just go look at them and show each other like the cards. I saw that in the Facebook group. That's awesome. I'm going to do that. Cause they're like six bucks. That's, I, it's such a, who needs to buy those? Mrs. OG loves them. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm doing the construction paper route this year. Just draw a heart on a piece of leftover construction paper. I heart you. You're, you're, uh, it's homemade. Your kids get away with it. Why shouldn't you? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Why shouldn't I? Absolutely. It's actually your loved ones and your time. It's why Haven Life is made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Their application simple and online. You get an instant coverage decision. Their prices are affordable. Of course, they're issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual. More than 160-year-old insurer. Been around a little bit. Uh, uh, Almost as old as you. Today, we have a question. We have a question. We actually listened to this question ahead of time. And uh, OG, I thought, man, we might be in trouble with this one. We we need to call in some experts. (laughs) We might. And luckily, she was walking through the neighborhood as uh, we were starting the show, and we're like, you've got to come down here and help. And so she's been upstairs talking to mom. Our good friend Leslie Tain is here with us. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, I'm glad you could help us with this. So we're going to play a question here from Vince. And uh, Leslie, we hope you've got a better answer than we do, because he's got some trouble. Let's listen. Hey, Joe OG. This is Vince from New Jersey. Longtime listener. Still haven't learned anything. So thanks for that. I have a question about student loans. My mother co-signed on uh, student loans for her great-niece a few years back. And to make a long story short, the parents got into a really bitter divorce, very messy. The girl wound up running away from home, went to a few different universities, and just wound up dropping out. And she's working now. But she raked up about $45,000 in student loan debt, which my mother has co-signed on. And we're trying to think of some options here. Uh, the normal course of action of getting my mother released will not work because neither the parents nor the girl have any assets, nor do they have any credit worthiness to get my mother off. So that's not going to work. A lawyer suggested that possibly if we stop paying the loan, it could go to collection and then there might be a chance of negotiating a smaller settlement. 
We are not so sure about that either. If that'll work, it's a big risk to take. We also aren't comfortable with promissory notes because they're not really enforceable. There's nothing really that we can go after with the parents or the girl. So I'm just kind of looking for options. Maybe there's something we haven't thought about. Uh, we're trying to write a note of goodwill to the student loan companies, but my hopes aren't high that they're going to be very charitable. So anything you can give, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for the question, Vince. And we should tell everybody why we ran and got Leslie for this question, because Leslie, this this kind of thing is in your wheelhouse. This is the kind of stuff you do every day. It is. I do this every day, multiple times a day. And so this is not your first rodeo. Sadly, you've probably heard Vince's question before. I actually have heard his question and certainly in uh, very extreme circumstances where the actual uh, debtor, the, the student has disappeared. So or is unwilling to pay. So absolutely, I've definitely heard this question and I can offer some um, some tips on it. But the first question, of course, I would have is whether this is a federal or a private loan uh. because your options for repaying it or negotiating it are going to be completely different. So if it's a federal loan, uh, negotiating is not going to be much of an option if you go delinquent. So I know that someone gave some advice to him about um, stopping the payment and hoping that it goes to collection for the purpose of negotiating a settlement. While that is an option in certain student loan cases, more likely in the private student loan arena, but it will detrimentally impact both these cosigners credit when you do that. However, that doesn't mean that's that's necessarily a bad thing. That means that you can kind of cut to the chase and get it settled for less than what you owe. But truthfully, that is likely not an option if it's a federal student loan or a federal loan that's been co-signed. So assuming that, and, we'll, and I'll talk about both of them again, assuming that they're both federal or private, I know that he mentioned also that a note of goodwill to the student loan company, yeah. you know, that, that in my experience, that's, that's really going to fall on deaf ears. To be honest, that's not really going to do too much for you. You know, they, th there's a lot of people with student loan debt and there's a lot of people with hardship information and there's people who are sick and dying and the student loan companies are still unwilling to negotiate the balances or, or understand that you're in that kind of situation. So he's so, right to he's right to think, Leslie, that that's going nowhere. Yeah, that's a waste of time, yeah. frankly. I, I wouldn't recommend that from my perspective. What I would recommend is really understanding the type of loan that you have. It's a federal or a private loan. If it's a private loan and you go delinquent, you may have the option of, of settling it, and that could work to your advantage. The other piece of the puzzle is if it's not, sometimes you can get a release of a cosigner, not necessarily with assets or with creditworthiness, with whether the loan one qualifies for that and two, it's done often when payments are made over the course of a period of time. So that could be 12, 24, 36, 48 payments consistently to the student loan companies and that can allow you an opportunity to be released as a co-signer. However, the caveat to that is you need cooperation from the student other the other co-signer. If you do not have cooperation from the student, the co-signer, then unfortunately you're in a position that you have to make the decision what you want to do with this loan. Do you want to pay it or not pay it? And if you don't pay it, what are the consequences of not paying it? In a federal student loan situation, if you do not pay it, then they can take, without suing you, your tax refund money 
And if you're older, they can garnish your social security, which is not something that's normally garnishable under other circumstances. So you won't be able to get away from a federal student loan if you don't pay. Again, in the private student loan, you're going to need somebody to walk you through that process who's an expert in that area, an attorney who regularly deals with it, because frankly, there's going to be some nuances and it could go to an attorney's office during that process of delinquency. Sounds like uh, it might be ugly no matter no matter what. OG? Well, I was going to ask how that affects, you know, if it's a federal loan, how it affects other government benefits. And, and you talked about that already. And that can be really detrimental, too. I, I'm, I don't like the idea of just letting it go to to collection and see what happens. Obviously, you know a, lo- a lot more about this. But if it's a private deal, I think just being upfront and honest is probably your best course of action and see what they'll do to work with you on it. Obviously, you can try the nuclear option of, well, I just won't pay it and let them try to get it. Um, well, that's but the downside you know, to that is just, I mean, there's so many other dominoes that fall there. There are, it's but there's a huge the upside to settling your private student loan debt. So assuming it's a private student loan, I mean, uh, you know, you could be talking about pennies on the dollar. I mean, I've been able sure. to negotiate hundred thousand dollar private student loans down to under 30,000 in interest-free payments. So sometimes the, if she doesn't need credit mom and she's, you know, in a situation where that's not really impactful for her and it's understand that that credit impact is only a temporary impact. It's not a long-term, it's not like you filed bankruptcy. It's not a long-term issue. The reality is with private student loans, you're not going to find them as flexible on the front end, whereas a federal student loan, you'll find them much more flexible. So I encourage you, if it's a federal student loan, to call them up and see whether you can get into income-based or income-sensitive repayment options to reduce what the actual payment is and the impact. The reality is I have clients who are in their 80s who have had their Social Security garnished. So that is not a that's not a good situation, and uh, it's it's something that I would encourage you to avoid. So with the federal loans, absolutely call them up and see what options are available. But you may end up paying. I'm also wondering about this from the federal standpoint. Could you not just, like you said, just drive that payment into the ground? You know, within reason, whatever whatever options they have, defer it or whatever. And just accept the fact that that debt is forty five grand now, and it might be two hundred and forty five thousand dollars in forty years from now when you're a hundred years old. But as long as you're following the protocol of income based or deferment or whatever whatever options are available to you, like eventually it becomes the niece's problem. You know, when mom's one hundred and five and gets hit by the mail truck, right? A hundred percent. You could do that depending on her age. If she's 60, I don't know that I would do that. If she's 80, 85, then that might make a lot of sense because, you know, you're cutting the time frame down. But it, at 60, that's a long time to try to defer things. Yeah. They're also going to want to see tax returns for income-based and income-sensitive type of programs. So they're going to want to see. And I have a client who came to see me the other day and, you know, an, an older couple who's in a situation similar to that and they file jointly. So understand that if mom's married and she files jointly with her spouse, uh, that the income-based and income-sensitive could fluctuate based on how taxes are filed too. Right. Thanks a ton, Leslie, for helping us. And if uh, Vince or anybody else needs needs this type of help, where do they find you? Well, you can find me a couple, a number of ways, certainly on the internet, Leslie Tane. It's spelled T-A-Y-N-E. It's www.tainlaw.com. And we have offices uh, all over. Certainly you can Google me and you'll find me uh, in multiple social media areas. Yeah. I feel like you're everywhere, Leslie. 
You're all over the place. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yes, we are. We're out there a lot. We want to try to help people, uh, certainly in the student loan arena, where there's so much misinformation about loans, repayment, what to do with it, how it impacts you. So we're here. Well, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes and helping Vince. Hey, my pleasure. Uh, good luck. Lots of luck. Thanks again to Leslie for hanging out. We also get letters down here in the basement. This one comes to us from Anne. My husband and I need to find a financial planner. Where do we start looking to find reliable ones that suit our situation and needs? That sounds like a setup question. <laughs> like we wrote it ourselves. We ran out of questions. And yeah. Sent it in Believe ourselves. it or not, we have tons of questions and this is an important question to answer. We actually, and we had a uh, piece a few shows ago. If you go back about three weeks, you'll find a show where we had 10 questions to ask financial advisors. That's an important mm -hmm. thing. I think, I think on my end, I really like talking to friends who are slightly ahead of you, but have similar circumstances. So if you're ever talking about financial stuff, which I know doesn't happen a lot, or you get the feeling that somebody might be doing well with their money, ask those people who their financial professional is in their corner. And then I think, OG, ask about how they work with them. Well, it's really important to find somebody that matches up with your personality style, I think, more than anything, because obviously the, the requisite skills are kind of a threshold competency. They've got to be licensed. They've got to be registered. I think you have to have a CFP. If they're not a CFP, you probably want to know, like, what else did you do instead of that? Because there are some different requirements for that. So I understand some people can't qualify for it. But personality match, I think, is really one of the most important things because ideally you want to work with this person or these, the, you know, this team of people for the rest of your life or for a really long time anyway. And so if you're going to do that, then you have to think, okay, do I really want to hang out with these people an hour or two or three or four a year for the next 20 years and talk to them about the things that I want to do. And a lot of times a financial advisor, client relationship isn't always about the money either. You know, sometimes it is, sometimes it works out to be, uh, you know, you're a, you're a, a litigator in a debate contest between spouses sometimes, or, you know, whatever. And, and, and you have to have that trust and confidence with the, you know, in that person that you're working with. Some of the places that I would look it really depends on where you are stage of life. Of course, I love the referral idea. You can look at the CFP board. So it's CFP.net and you can search for certified financial planners in your area. XY planning network, I think is continuing to grow at an ever increasing pace. And if you're in that generation, if you're a Gen X person or a Gen Y person or a millennial. I don't know. Are, are Gen Ys and millennials the same? I'm not sure. I think Maybe so. They <laughs> Maybe they're not. Beats me. Anyway, <clears throat> it tells you I'm at least one away from that if I don't know what the next one is, right? So, but xyplanningnetwork.com have advisors all over the country. What I really like about their approach is when you go on their website, you can search for, here are the things that I need help with. And those advisors across the country have selected themselves, so to speak, of like, here's what I'm good at. I'm good at helping with student loan refinancing, or I'm really good at helping with uh, you know, retirement planning or whatever the case may be. I think a, another really great thing about the way technology has helped our business is that you don't necessarily have to find the best advisor where you are. 
I was reading a blog article about an advisor who started his advisory practice from another career because in his town, there were no fee-only advisors. He said he had looked around, he wanted to work with one, he couldn't find one. So he said, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be that person. And it's really important, I think, to have a good relationship. And sometimes that's a person-to-person relationship. With the way technology is now, with Skype and video conferencing and GoToMeeting and all these other technology tools, and frankly, how cheap it is to travel, you can find the best advisor for you regardless of where they are. Maybe you live in Boston, but the best advisor for you is in Santa Fe. That's okay. With technology now, you can make that happen. So, so you're not going to be limited to just the, the local area. So CFP.net and um, uh, an XY Planning Network would be kind of the first places that I would start. There's another resource that I just thought of. Friend of the show, Raghav Sharma. He's appeared here and talked about this uh, guidevine. If you go to stackybedjamins.com forward slash guidevine, you can watch videos from different financial advisors and see which one you might. Uh, it's almost like a pre-interview, you know, like like when you're dating, you get to see a video by them about who they are before you actually commit Yeah, kind of what their philosophy is and different things and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah before you, good, really before you're in an hour long meeting awkwardly with somebody who you know five minutes in is just not a fit. You know, for mm-hmm. me, for me, and this really depends on what you're looking for, but I'll tell you that my personal preference is, we were talking about jargon earlier, somebody who's holistic, people don't even know what the hell that really means, but somebody, mm-hmm. but somebody who's not just interested in my IRA or my investments, but interested in me as a person. Like I think of my financial advisor as somebody, I'm a rock star and this is my agent, right? This is somebody who's who is looking out for my best interest in lots of different areas of my life. For me, that's what I'm looking for, and that's the type of advisor that I tried to be when I was when I was practicing. I wanted to get to know my client really well. I wanted to know what they were really thinking about, so I could sometimes then call them and say, "Hey, I was reading this thing, and you know what? I think this might apply to you." But I can't have that type of relationship if I'm just your IRA guy, you know? And I often see people say, well, my my financial advisor does XYZ versus the market. I don't think a good financial planner, somebody has a financial planner and the thing you brag about them is their performance versus the market. For me, that's kind of a runaway sign. A lot of good ideas here. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for the letter. And if you've got a question for us, Vince not only got great advice from our friend Leslie, but also he's taking home the greatest money show on earth t-shirt, stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail for the Haven Lifeline. And Anne got her question answered. We always have a longer line, by the way, for letters than we do for voicemail. So if you want to get your question answered earlier and you also want the Brad Lark swag, which who doesn't want Brad swag? By the way, he's coming up with a couple other designs that uh, we'll be able to spill the beans on here shortly, which is going to be awesome. That's going to do it for today. By the way, thanks to everybody who's left a review of this year podcast. Mom's put this review on her refrigerator. This one is written by man, man, man sucks. (laughs) I'm not even sure what that means. Man, man, man sucks. Who would name their kid that? 
Uh, this may be the year I actually learned something from this show. Five stars. Other than Doug's fabulous trivia, I may actually learn something from this show. I promise I won't tell anyone if I do, though. Thankfully, Doug carries the show. Joe and OG are nerds who have a, quote, job as podcasters, whatever that is. <laughs> Got to meet Doug at the Sizzler. See ya. Uh, I love that. You know what I love about that review, OG? Somebody reads that who has never listened to the show. They have no idea what the hell. No idea what they're doing. <laughs> what yeah. the hell we're talking about. And that's why mom likes it. Uh, mom likes them all. Thanks a ton to everybody who's left us a review and let people know what they're getting into with this here podcast. All right. That's going to do it for today. Speaking of learning, Doug, what should we have learned today, man? Hey, here's what you didn't learn today. First, take some advice from Tanya Hester. What goals are you excited about? Are you chasing your own goals or those of someone else? Is there a way you could make chasing your own goals a reality? Time for some homework. Second, take advice from Leslie Tame. If you're in debt with someone else's problems, examine the types of debt first to see if you can extricate yourself. But the big lesson? Don't try to play your big you-can't-touch-this-guitar riff with dishwasher hands. Dishwasher hands, people! How can an artiste practice his craft when he's consistently asked to do menial labor? Menial labor, I say, woman! You people don't know what a genius you have in your midst. Thanks to Tanya Hester for joining us on today's show. You'll find her book, Work Optional, wherever books are sold. Thanks also to Leslie Tain for helping us with today's Haven Lifeline. You'll find Leslie and her team helping people with debt at TainLaw.com. That's T-A-Y-N-E Law.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. We talked a little bit about Joel and people that haven't 
listened to the show for a long time don't know that um that people who know me really well have uh call me Joel and they think my name is Joel like with an L J O E L in fact my uncle who has known me since I was born after my aunt Ruth passed away and I was maybe 40 41 years old he takes over writing Christmas cards and I get a Christmas card that year to Joel Salsihai and family. Joel Salsihai. I had a client that my whole team would laugh about because he would always write me notes that said, Hey, hey, Joel, just sending you my 401k stuff, whatever. And finally, after he did it a couple times, I would write him back and I go, You know, it's great, Mike, that you sent your 401k stuff. And when people send this and they say, Hey, Joe, here's my 401k stuff. I take it and I look at it. Like I would use my own name about 40 times during the thing, you, you know? So I'm having, it still a, didn't work. I'm having a discussion with somebody and they say, Hey, uh, this, this Joe, I said, da, 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 da. So I, I purposefully engineered it. So I put Joe and then signed and usually, no, you've got your whole full name there at the bottom. I just said, Joe and got rid of my signature. He writes back. Usually 30 seconds later, email back. Thanks, Joel. <laughs> with an L. Yep. And that dude, I think I might have worked with that guy for eight years. Never wow. got it. You know, and back then people had statements, you know, they get paper statements. Oh, yeah. So I have your advisor listed at the top. On his paper statement right at the top, it says Joe. Every Actually, they take it back. It might have said Joseph. Probably said Joseph. Might have said Joseph. So, all right. But man. But still, that doesn't translate to Joel. I had somebody do it again last week, wrote something to Joel. And I, mm-hmm. I just thought, really? Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, you have a screwed up name. So what are you going to do? All right. Let's talk about sharing. Just to simplify it to uh, two, two things. So here's the thing when it comes to uh, Valentine's Day, gentlemen and ladies to some extent. But I think, I think this is a guy thing. So we all know that you got to do something for your significant other. And nothing's easier to do and nothing is more well-received than food. There's a company out there called Sherry's Berries. We're not endorsed by them, although we'd be happy to be, especially this time of year. And I always send half a dozen or a dozen chocolate-covered strawberries. I don't, you know, 20 bucks. Easy peasy. So probably about, gosh, it's been what, maybe five years now? Yeah. Eight years? That you've been doing this? Something like that. It dawned on me. I should send some of these to my mom. Duh. You know? And while I send them to my mom, and this is the key, folks, send them to your mother-in-law also. And? It's earth-shattering. Oh, it's just, it's fantastic. Because, first of all, you know, we were talking about presents before and stuff like that. And like how just, you know, when you get Christmas time or whatever, you're like, I have everything I need. And, you know, you get to the point where you don't actually do that much stuff anymore, right? You know, you might, you and Cheryl may have a gift that you get each other, you know, for Mrs. OG and I got a wine fridge. She got some other stuff too. And so did I, but our thing was, Hey, we're getting a wine fridge. That's our gift to each other. Hooray. You know? And so when you get older, I just, I just think that that stuff goes away. And and so now boom, you drop a, Half dozen chocolate covered strawberries on Valentine's Day to your mother in law. It's a lifetime of attaboys. 
lifetime. So and successful. Oh, it's just, you know, now, I mean, the problem is you can never stop doing that. So there's some downside to this. Like, yeah, once you start, because then, because then if you do stop, you know, you're the guy who, well, he used to, you know. Oh, why? You didn't, if, did you not do it one year? No, God, no, I'm not that dumb. But if you have kids and that, you know, you can also put them from the grandkids, you know, so it's you and the boys. That's how I put them. And uh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. So that's my secret for Valentine's Day. Hook up your mother-in-law. It'll be a great year. Bam. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.